For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, following the money that funds Arizona politicians. What is a museum of identity? World-renowned curator Barbara Kirschenblatt-Gimblet will explain. And composer and performer Steve Roach talks about his method for shaping sound and taking the desert with you wherever you go. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The 2018 campaign season is well underway, which means the fundraising machine is in high gear. Some of that money will be traceable and transparent. Some of it will be more anonymous in nature. Christopher Conover looks at new ways to track the money and get to the bottom of where some political funding really comes from. He's a problem solver who brings Republicans and Democrats together. Get ready, your TV is about to be taken over by campaign ads, and your inbox and mailbox are about to be filled with requests for campaign donations. It will be the most expensive midterms ever. Ian Vandewalker with the Brennan Center for Justice at the New York University Law School says a shift is underway when it comes to campaign donations. If you look at trends over time, more of the money is coming from a relatively small number of huge donors as opposed to ordinary people who can afford uh, small donations of 10 or $100. Campaign donations are used for all types of expenses. The most visible are the ubiquitous TV ads. The law says we have to know who paid for the ad. I approve this message because I've seen what we need to do. And if the ad is from a candidate, those dollars are easy to trace. For state candidates like governor, the information is on the Secretary of State's website. For federal candidates, the numbers are on the Federal Election Commission's website. But those sites can be difficult to use, especially if you're trying to cross-reference different campaigns or donors, a problem Arizona Secretary of State Michelle Reagan is trying to solve with her new website, seethemoney.com. You don't need to know anything or, you know, names. You can get to the same pieces of information through multiple different avenues on See the Money. The website lets users search a number of categories, beginning with individuals like Governor Doug Ducey. When you click on his name, you can see his donors. You can click on the donors and see who they gave to. But not all campaign spending is reported. So-called dark money comes from nonprofit groups who are not required to report their donors. Secretary Reagan says the See the Money website tries to shed a little light on those dark groups. We pull in for the user the IRS 990s of that group. Because remember, these groups have to file somewhere. So where do they file? They file with the IRS. Now, this isn't um, as detailed of information as some people would like, but it still starts to give you some names and addresses. Dark money groups should not be confused with political action committees. PACs do have to report their contributors. Former Arizona Attorney General Terry Goddard says the battle against dark money is not easy. You know, I'm a prosecutor. I used to go after people for money laundering. And this is money laundering. It's legal money laundering, but it's still money laundering. They're trying to keep voters from knowing where the money comes from. Goddard is backing a constitutional amendment that would outlaw hiding contributors. And I think we're entitled. I think we have a right 
as citizens to know who's behind a campaign. Um, and that tells you a lot about why that campaign's being run. Maybe it's a corporate interest that wants to promote a particular policy, and that's why they support this particular person. Uh, we need to know that. And maybe we'll be favorable and maybe we won't, but we need to know the facts. Dark money is a way of life in 21st century politics. Does its influence diminish the personal donations by average citizens who must list their name, occupation, and address for the public to see? The Brennan Center's Ian Vandewalker says no. In a democracy, people will always have the ability to come together um, and raise, raise their voices together. There are certain candidates who believe in that and insist on raising money that way rather than chasing the big checks. When Secretary of State Reagan was a member of the state Senate, she sponsored a bill in the legislature to ban dark money. It was a bipartisan effort. It failed. Since then, as Secretary of State, she has not taken that battle up again. First of all, the ability to get something like that through the legislature, quite frankly, it's not going to happen. Um, and the second thing is, the way we had it written and, and the ways that things um, could have been changed on it, forcing people to disclose things that a federal law says that they don't have to disclose, we ran into it. We had a lot of attorneys in the room trying to let us know if this was constitutional. That is why Reagan says she hasn't pushed dark money legislation since becoming Secretary of State. Goddard sees it differently. I'm partnering with Michelle Reagan on nothing. Now, if she wants to endorse our proposition, that's fine with me. Uh, but frankly, I don't think she will. She received dark money in her campaign, and she was the architect of the laws that basically loosened up the, uh, the, the, the provisions that allow these people to do even more. But the former attorney general might be surprised to learn Reagan may not be the enemy in the campaign. My philosophy is this, if that gets passed, it's more information for See the Money. Because again, See the Money is as powerful as the information that's being entered into it. So I personally believe that given a choice between transparency, no transparency, transparency is always going to be better. The See the Money website is still in beta testing and Goddard's proposal is still collecting signatures. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Christopher Conover. Barbara Kirschenblatt-Gimblet, known to her friends as BKG, is a woman who loves museums. She plans to visit as many as she can during her trip to Tucson next week. BKG is giving the featured talk at the second annual Elizabeth Liebson Holocaust Remembrance, sharing perspectives that she's learned as chief curator of one of the world's most important exhibitions, the Pauline Museum on the History of Polish Jews in Warsaw. In the United States, Holocaust museums, Holocaust centers, Holocaust exhibition, Holocaust education, and chairs in Holocaust studies at university, they are far outpacing uh, the development of what I would call Jewish museums, chairs in Jewish history, and uh, basically education that is predicated on a wider perspective on Jewish history. It's understandable on the one hand, but on the other hand, um, it, it speaks to the special role the Holocaust plays in American Jewish life and in the broadening of its significance in relationship to other traumatic histories, whether it's the history of genocides in other parts of the world, the history of slavery, and the like. What has happened is that Poland, well, first of all, being home to the largest Jewish community in Europe, and being the place where the Germans 
builds all of the of the death camps. It is the epicenter of the genocide, and as such, it has become the go-to place for commemorating the Holocaust. Of course, people go to other sites in Europe, and they they go to places in Germany and Berlin, but overwhelmingly, there's there's, there's no doubt that Auschwitz is the uh, the iconic site that if there were one place to go to uh, truly fathom, uh, which of course, to fathom the unfathomable, it would be Auschwitz. And so the Holocaust has not only come to play this very special role in American Jewish life, but it has also dominated the perspective on the history of European Jews, the history of Polish Jews, and the image of Poland in relationship to World War II and specifically in relationship to Jews. And on the one hand, I would say that the that education about the Holocaust and Holocaust commemoration are of tremendous importance. However, there's a way in which this focus on the Holocaust has completely overshadowed a much, much wider, deeper history, and in particular, the history of Polish Jews. And this is what the what, what Pauline Museum of the History of Polish Jews sets out to address. And that is that not only as a result of the Holocaust was the largest Jewish community in Europe uh, murdered, but also the world that they created was destroyed with them. And the memory of that world was also lost. And so it is, a, from our perspective, and certainly from my perspective, a moral obligation to recover that world and to recover the memory of that world and to transmit it to future generations. Without that kind of commitment, the world will ultimately know more about how Jews died than how they lived. And I would say that this does a disservice to them, to their lives, and to lives that were lived continuously in in the case of Poland, uh, continuously in that territory, 4,000 years. Jews were never expelled from Poland. They became the, uh, during the 18th century, half the Jewish population of the world lived in the historical territory of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, 750,000 Jews. How can the culture, the life, the families, how can they be remembered now, so many years later, in a way that teaches us more about Jewish life than Jewish tragedy and death? Well, in the case of Polymuseum of the History of Polish Jews, this is a combination of history, of bringing history to life, but it's also a way of uh, bringing the story forward to the present and to the renewal of Jewish life in Poland today and expanding the geography out to the many places in the world where Jews from this territory settled, where they created new lives in their new homes, and where they carried the legacy of the civilization created by Polish Jews with them. That's what museums do. I mean, we're, we're an institution of public history. And as such, our task is to make history vivid, engaging, and to, if you will, activate the historical imagination of our visitors, to bring a kind of historical awareness that, they, that, they, that, that for the most part they did not have, and to do so in a way that's memorable, emotional, and thought-provoking. Recently, the phrase identity politics has been used a lot in the national discussion. And for some people, it's an aggravating phrase. For others, they would say, well, of course politics are about identity. It's the root of all our choices in life. When we hear the term identity museums, the same thought arises. Um, 
when you hear identity museums, what does that phrase mean to you? Well, it's a phrase that Edward Rothstein, who used to write about these museums for the New York Times and continues to write about them, it's a phrase that kind of supersedes ethnic museums. And it's very American. I argue, uh, not everybody agrees with me, that the Polish Museum of the History of Polish Jews is not an identity museum, not an ethnic museum, and not a Jewish museum. And for me, this is a great virtue of, of this particular museum. Now, in the United States, the suggestion, the, the idea is that somehow these um, uh, minorities, essentially, otherwise known as ethnic groups, create their own museums. They're created by, about, and for the communities that are their subject and then try to broaden their message to attract a wider audience and, of course, also to attract funding from wider from a wider range of sources. So for me, it was incredibly important that Pauline Museum is not an identity museum or an ethnic museum. It's a museum of public history, and it, it is a museum that presents the history of one of several groups that have historically lived in the territory, the historical territory of Poland. This kind of a museum plays quite differently in Europe than the so-called identity museums play in the United States. And those identity museums um, arose, I think, pretty much um, around what they call the new ethnicity in the 1960s, when there was, particularly white ethnicity, kind of came to the fore. And there was either a proliferation or a uh, expansion, growth, or reinvigoration of museums that were dealing with, and creating of new museums that were dealing with the Japanese in America, the Chinese in the Americas, Italians, Swedes, Norwegians, Jews, of course. But what I find fascinating is the extent to which what you might call Jewish identity museums have been superseded in many ways by Holocaust museums. That's what's interesting. That's something that I, you know, I'd like to give some more thought to. And that seems to play back into where we started almost with people learning more about how Jews died and mm-hmm. how they lived. And that, I think, has to do with the shaping of American Jewish identity. Mm-hmm. That is being shaped around Judaism, Holocaust, and Israel. And a missing piece, if you will, is the kind of story that we tell at Pauline Museum of the History of Polish Jews. Barbara, I'd like you to think back and tell me, was there a profound moment for you when you were a young person about museums? Was there oh, a... my God. <laughs> tell me. Oh, my God. Well, my parents were born and raised in Poland, and I grew up in a Jewish immigrant neighborhood in downtown Toronto during the 1940s and the early 1950s. I went to a Canadian public school, and I went to Jewish after school. None of them were any good, and I ended up in a modern Orthodox religious theater. The only thing modern about it were boys and girls in the same room. And as a result of that experience, and I would have been maybe 10 years old, I became so unbelievably Orthodox that I was unrecognizable to my parents, so much so that I would do nothing on the Sabbath on Saturday. I couldn't write, tear paper, go to a movie, spend money, ride in a, a tram on a streetcar, nothing, zero. I could read a book, I could go to the children's library, or I could walk to the Royal Ontario Museum. I would say that Sabbath observance made me a museum fanatic. 
And every Saturday, I would walk through Queens Park to the Roland Terrier Museum, a great Universal Survey Museum, six floors, one floor each Saturday, starting with uh, First Nations on the in the basement, uh, and working my way up floor by floor by floor, Saturday after Saturday after Saturday, totem poles in the stairwells, get to the top floor, go back down to the bottom, and I did that for years. And I would say that that is what made me a museum person. My guest was Barbara Kirschenblatt-Gimblet. Her talk, Rising from the Rubble, will be part of the second annual Elizabeth Liebson Holocaust Remembrance on Thursday, February 1st at 7 p.m. The event is presented by the Jewish History Museum and the Holocaust History Center at the Jewish Federation Building, which is at 3718 East River Road in Tucson. There's a link to register on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Since the late 1970s, the music produced by Sonoran Desert resident Steve Roach has been gaining fans and attracting worldwide attention. Designed for deep listening, Roach pushes the technology of synthesizers and sequencers, but he always embraces the warmth of analog sound, driven by spirituality and an awareness that draws on many disciplines. His latest album, Spiral Revelation, has been nominated as New Age Album of the Year, The winner will be revealed at the Grammy Awards this Sunday evening. And that gave me a chance to talk with Steve Roach about his dedication to sound and how it feels to be nominated. It's a tremendous honor to be acknowledged at this level in in the world of the Recording Academy and, you know, what that world represents. While at the same time, I'm not part of that world at all. Ultimately, I mean, I've been doing my work for, well, since, you know, 79, and I've been doing what I do um, just, you know, year after year. Helping to define what an independent musician is. Right, and and this genre that's really hard to define the genre itself. I mean, it's almost like I've created my own genre by doing the range of music that I do uh, and have been compelled to do since the beginning. So, uh, you know, I've been just... I don't want to say quietly, but just I've had my head down and just doing my work for, for, for years. It's just completely single focused on, on that without the support really of large record labels, um, great independent labels I'm working with, Project Records in particular for years. But as far as being part of that, you know, the political structure of what the Grammys are about, that was that when that email came in that morning, it just came in, you know, like something falling out of the sky into my kitchen. Uh, from one of my mastering engineer had submitted it quietly this year, and he didn't even tell myself or my record label owner. He just sort of put it in there, and so there was no campaign, there was nothing behind it for your consideration. 
took a little bit to realize it was actually, at first, the, the email was to me. I thought it was a missend to someone else. <laughs> well, also nominated in the same category, you've got Brian Eno and you've got Guitaro. I right. Mean, that's my first uh, ambient or deep listening album was Guitaro. Um, right. Back in the Columbia Record and Tape Club days. Outstanding, and yeah. I still had that cassette. Nice, so. on the cassette, right. So, and for Eno, of course, he's defined the, you know, the genre. Um, just the name itself speaks so much to you know, the ambient world in terms of what ambient started out as in terms of that, you know, that kind of, um, no, music for airports comes to mind. Right music away. for airports and on land and all the early albums from the eighties that helped to define that, uh, for this form of music, you know, as it continued to evolve and expand and grow beyond boundaries, you can't even, you know, there's no reason to even think of a genre now it's just going in all directions like the big bang of creativity with technology driving it let's talk about spiral revelation and what does it represent is this a, a milestone in your career for any reason from your perspective as the creator it's um you know it's a it's an important album in the progression of this particular style of music one of the tools we use in electronic music to create the repetitive patterns is called a sequencer it's very sophisticated in its hands-on simplicity in terms of how you can combine elements, shorter time length sequences to create like a mosaic of patterns. So I've been working and perfecting and basically integrating my consciousness into that instrument for 35 years. And so now in this era of the analog synthesizer, the hands-on thing that you normally think of with big patch chords and a big wall of of knobs and all that that's that's there's a renaissance of that that's worldwide that's exploding and it's all being made brand new now so those instruments have been available along the way but now they're they're being made with new precision incredible sound quality a visceral aspect of what analog delivers to your body and your ears and your mind when you're hearing it so for me it was uh, I've had a series of albums that have been building towards this sound, uh, the previous album was called Spiral Meditation, and then the Spiral Revelation came out earlier last year, and now the next one in this kind of, it's not a series, but it's in that particular world of the pattern, mosaic, uh, almost like moray patterns, but with very emotional and a lot of passion woven in there. The, the next one is the Molecules of, of Motion. So it's really about uh, the kind of music that lights up your, your perception your left and right brain uh, perception, uh, the tonal qualities of it are very sensual. And it just, to me, it opens a door um, that in an, an album that was in this same series was called Skeleton Keys, because to me, the music itself is like a, key, a skeleton key that opens a door that you can't access through any other kind of music. Before the interview started, you were telling me some things about how you ended up in Tucson and how this became your home. Can you describe for our listeners how this environment, do you think, is felt in your work? Oh, absolutely. Spent time in Australia. I grew up in Southern California deserts, immensely drawn to that in the sound aspect of it. And then there's the, the incredible body 
sensation and sensual nature of the temperature that we have here a lot, which is almost the, on the best days when you're when the ambient temperature is matching your body temperature. And I feel this dissolving of my body barriers, so I'm expanding outward. I mean, I'm always feeling that expansion on those kind of days. And then there's the other days where, you know, we know our summer um, kind of beats you down. A yeah, that's bit. another yeah. aspect of that. But that's still a great part of the intensity and, the la and this land of extremes that we live in. And then you just look at the things that thrive here and the plants and the animals and you look at what the what how the how the, all these things have adapted. And so for me, it's a great metaphor for just adapting to to extremes and to also have the agility to move between these very dynamic physical experiences that you get from your immediate environment and the expansive views that even in the middle of the city everywhere you can always kind of get grounded on where you're at what, what direction you're looking at and and what that particular area is doing that day like some days the way the clouds form over the catalinas or over the rincons or over the tucson mountains and you know i've been here since 90 you know i'm never taking it for granted and you know always feeling engaged and, and I you know I get out and do mountain biking in the Tucson mountains and you know for years I've been I've experienced every mountain range around here through mountain biking and that's a wonderful thing to get out and to get engaged at that level where you're pushing the breath and pushing yourself and then you're out into some area that very few people get to so that's a big piece of it. Spiral Revelation has six tracks, six yes. movements. Um, can you pick one and tell us a little something about it that you think adds to the music? With all of my albums, the, the titles are really part of this piece that is important when I talked about a key, like music has kind of a, an aspect of being a key to open a door. So I feel like the titles help to set your, the intentions of that piece. So the first piece is called We Continue. And it's really about this path that I'm on. It's a solitary path on the most part. I mean, I really relate a lot to being a visual artist where I'm in my studio and I'm painting long hours of the day into the night. The studio that I have is my is basically a studio house, so it's not a, a you know a bomb shelter. I mean, it's got windows and light, and I can see 50, 60 miles out the studio window, which is vital. And so I'm ensconced in space, and so I can open it up and control the light and the view. And some days I want to contain myself. I don't necessarily want to look out 50 miles into the horizon line. Yeah. But in any case, the you know the emotional through line with with this piece is really about this feeling of of how I've connected to this music for so many years and how I'm still completely you know every day I wake up really you know empowered to create and to pass this feeling to other people The 60th annual Grammy Awards ceremony will happen this Sunday in New York, but Steve Roach won't be there because he's preparing for three shows in Tucson at Solar Culture's Galactic Center on February 9th, 10th, and 11th. 
Latest word is that tickets are still available for the show on Sunday the 11th. You can find a link on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.